This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back to you and to me. I've been gone for a while. I was in Ecuador. That's right. You heard me correctly. I was in Ecuador. I have a nephew who's been living in Ecuador with his wife. They run an orphanage in Cuenca. So I was down there with my family, my sister's family. We visited him, toured the countryside. When I got back from Ecuador, I meant to make some episodes. But, you know, life gets busy. It's a new year, things to do. And, well, you know, it got away from me. But we're back this week. And this may seem like a non sequitur, but I've been thinking a lot about Bitcoin. You've all heard of Bitcoin, I think. Hope you didn't buy at the top because it's down about 65% from the top, so that's a bummer. And for those who don't know, Bitcoin is a new type of money. It's electronic money. And the ledgers that keep track of where all the money is is kept in this gigantic decentralized network, a network full of thousands and thousands and thousands of computers. And each one of these computers has a copy of the ledger, the record, that tracks every Bitcoin at any given time. Every 10 minutes, every computer on this network of thousands and thousands and thousands of computers updates their ledger. And they all get a new copy, the thousands and thousands of computers. So there's thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of this ledger. They're all the same, updated every 10 minutes. And because it's highly decentralized and nobody owns the network, people own Nodes on the network, I can own one of the computers on the network, but the network in totality is owned by no one. And because of that, it's virtually impossible to hack in and screw up the ledger. You can hack into one of the nodes, one of the computers. You can hack into my computer. Probably mine's the easiest to hack into because I'm not very smart with computers. But you can't, but because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of this ledger that are updated every 10 minutes, you can't really change the whole network. You, you know, it's, so it makes it incredibly secure. Even though no one owns it, no one controls it, it's very, very secure. It's virtually unhackable. It being the network in totality. And as long as one of these nodes survives, even if there's a you know, zombie apocalypse, nuclear holocaust, solar flares, an asteroid hits the Earth, as long as one of these nodes survives, then the ledger, which is keeping track of all the Bitcoin that have ever existed, then that ledger can survive and start replicating again, and it can live on, it being the system of Bitcoin. Well, that's weird. It's almost like the Bitcoin network is a living organism itself. It was created by people. It's computer code. So it's basically ones and zeros. All these computers talking back to each other, broadcasting back and forth to each other all the time, constantly updating, updating this ledger. But it's kind of like this living thing, this, this blob. And at this point, you can't really turn it off. You know, again, I can turn off a node on this network. I can turn off my computer shut down my little piece of it. But the network in general, you really can't turn that off. You have to basically turn off all the electricity on the whole planet. You could, if you could do that, you could then shut down Bitcoin. But short of that, you can't. 
and there's no single entity that's in control of it. It just kind of lives. People are having a hard time with this idea, this idea of something being highly decentralized beyond any one person's control, particularly when it comes down to money or, or a medium of exchange. Because the way things work today is there are people in control of the money. There are central banks throughout the world. They issue money to other banks who then kind of replicate money. That's not a quite accurate way of describing it. But they kind of replicate the money through checking accounts and loans. And, but there's sort of someone at the top of this big pyramid who's deciding how much money flows in and out. And There's someone in charge. There's a grown-up, an adult, a big boy or a big girl. You know, somebody who, you know, who's running things. And we, there's something about that that comforts us, the idea that, well, there's somebody in charge and, you know, they're going to take care of us. Particularly when it comes to our money, we like the idea that someone's paying attention and is in charge of it. In the old days, it was the Romans who would stamp the gold coins. Today, we have, you know, federal Reserve bankers and European central banks and, you know, they're controlling things. But now there's this new kind of highly decentralized network, this big blob of thousands and thousands and thousands of computers. They all have a copy of this big ledger. And on this ledger is a, is a record of the location and the ownership of every single Bitcoin at any given time. And every 10 minutes, it's updated. And no one can turn this thing off. No matter how hard you try to turn it off, it'd be like whack-a-mole. You can shut off part of it, but then it pops up somewhere else and replicates. And there's something that's really appealing about that new way of doing things. But then there's also something kind of freaky about it because we're, we, we're, we're the people. We're the sentient people with consciousness. Why are we sort of allowing this uncontrolled living blob that we made but now is separate and independent from us sort of control our money and you know this is a highly metaphysical disturbance in our world that's going on right now and people can't figure out how they want to feel about this some people are bidding bitcoin to the moon they think it's the future it's gone from a thousand bucks to twenty thousand bucks now it's back down to eight thousand bucks at the time of this recording so it's just people are bidding it way up then it's crashing and and then the people who have been in control of the legacy system, well, they think Bitcoin is a, an abomination, a bubble, evil, a threat. So there's this big kind of intellectual battle going on about what's the best way to move forward in terms of our money, in terms of how we transact, how we do business. There's tension, a lot of tension between the old banking system, the old investment banks, the old trading houses, and this new, weird, virtual, decentralized, nobody owns it, what is it, digital thing. And the more the legacy system fights against the new system, the more the centralized system of central banks fights against this new system of decentralized, nobody owns it, I don't want to say virtual, but, but crypto, digital, money, the more fuel and energy they're giving this new system. Because the new system takes that energy, that resistance, and they figure out ways to get around it or to overcome it. 
or to deal with it or to suppress it or to conquer it, extinguish it. But the more energy, the more resistance, the more that the old system fights, the more energized the new decentralized system becomes. Well, that's kind of weird, but that seems to be how progress happens, isn't it? Progress is typically the result of tension, of dissonance, of conflict, of opposing forces ramming each other. And if someone, if one side or the other can figure out how to harness the kinetic energy, they can usually win. And win is probably the wrong word, but they can usually move forward, progress, overcome, or advance. We as a people, we hate tension, though. We hate conflict. And when I say we as a people, I mean we as the LDS, our community. We hate anything adversarial. It's unpleasant. We discourage it. We call it the spirit of Satan, don't we? Anything that resembles tension or conflict is seen as a categorical evil inside our community. And so we run from it. But tension, conflict, has its own energy. It's like fire, nuclear power. It's like electricity. It's like gasoline. And you can use gasoline to throw a Molotov cocktail, or you can put gasoline in your automobile and you can drive it. You can use nuclear power to destroy cities in the form of nuclear bombs, or you can use it to power your homes. You can use electricity to electrocute a murderer, or you can use it to turn on the computer that I'm using right now to record this podcast, and which you're using to run your iPhone or your whatever it is you're using to listen to this podcast. And my point is that energy is neither good nor bad. And I'm going to go farther and say that tension and conflict is neither good nor bad but the goodness or the badness comes in how you apply it. And I think sweeping it under the rug, conflict or tension that is, is not a good way to apply it. I had a friend who used to work at the temple here in Boston. She was a full-time employee. She said the tension inside the temple was palpable. I thought that was strange. What on earth did she mean? And what she meant was that everyone inside the temple was so afraid of being candid, was so afraid of hurting each other's feelings, trying so hard to be polite, trying so hard to avoid conflict, that, that the result was that nothing was ever resolved and that people just repressed their real thoughts and feelings about things. This energy that comes from conflict, from tension, was not applied or used in the way that it could have been, which was to resolve things, to have open discussions, to develop new ways of doing whatever they had to do administratively inside the temple. I don't know what they were doing, you know, recording names or who knows. But there was, you know, conflicts about process, conflicts about how one should work, conflicts about you know, the whens and the whats and the hows and the logistics of life. None of, none of the energy of those conflicts was being applied to resolving the problems. It was just being repressed, swept under the rug, and it just was this big sort of constipated 
unacknowledged tension exuding from people walking around in white clothes. Well, that seemed very odd to me that that was happening inside the temple. We've all had experiences, those who of us who have been on missions, of the same sort of thing. We're on missions serving the Lord, but we're stuck with other elders, and we're not quite getting along, and nobody knows how to resolve the tension, and we're just told that if you feel conflict, that's the spirit of the devil. Well, that's not helpful. Now, the reason I'm raising any of this is because when I was gone, I got an instant message on Facebook from someone, and she wrote this. I've enjoyed your podcast on developing your own moral authority. That's what she wrote. Thank you. Her name is Tierra. Thank you, Tierra. Then she continues. Two issues have come up as I've wrestled with this idea, however. Number one, submission is a character trait exemplified by Jesus when he submitted to the will of the Father. If one believes this is a trait worth developing for greater spirituality, who does one submit to in order to develop this trait while at the same time owning one's own moral authority? Do you submit to church leaders when you don't agree with them just for the sake of submitting? Or do you bypass the whole religious leader submission thing like Jesus did and submit directly to God? And number two, if this is one's route, how is it done? And parenthetically, Tierra asks, how can one avoid self-deception in the process? The reason this particular message stayed in my mind is because I think it's reflective of the whole cultural bias that currently exists inside our church, inside our community, to avoid conflict and tension at all costs. That tension and conflict are fundamental evils to be avoided. Now, some of you may be wondering how I draw that conclusion from the reading of this message. Implied in the question, though, is this, when I feel tension, when I feel conflict, when I disagree, when I don't want to do what I'm being told to do, or I don't agree with what's being preached at me, how do I, church member, submit better? Because I think that's what I'm supposed to do. I think I'm supposed to submit, just like Jesus submitted to the Sanhedrin, just like he submitted to the crucifixion. I think I'm supposed to do that. I'm not supposed to think about the conflict or the tension. I'm certainly not supposed to engage in anything adversarial because we know that that is categorically of the devil. I feel this energy, this vibe. It feels like conflict and tension, but instead of treat, treating it as gasoline or electricity or nuclear energy, which can be used for good or ill, I'm going to just suppress it entirely and submit to the hierarchy, to the leaders, to whomever it is that I have a disagreement with. And so I'd like a little advice on how I can submit better, how I can overcome my selfish, narcissistic, confrontational evil impulses. And so we think we have this choice in our mind, which is in fact a false choice, of submitting and repressing or being evil. That seems to be the choice we have in our mind. And, and the way that we reinforce this false choice inside our community is we point to situations where people take the energy of tension, the energy of conflict, and apply it in a destructive way. Again, think back to the gasoline analogy. We point to people who take the gasoline of tension and conflict, and they make Molotov cocktails out of it. And there are a lot of those people, and we know them, and we see them, and we may agree with the, the, the catalyst 
of their bomb throwing. We may agree with the reasoning of the conflict and the tension that they feel vis-a-vis the church, vis-a-vis leaders, vis-a-vis whatever. But we don't really agree with the tactic. We don't think you ought to bottle it, light a match to it, and throw a bomb. And so this reinforces in our mind the perception that we have this false choice of repressing, submitting, or being an evil bomb thrower. But of course, that's just a false choice. And this false choice ends up repressing energy. We view what can be potentially fuel as an evil categorically. We have gone way too far with this. And I think people recognize that. I mean, I I, I think all you got to do is watch our general conferences to know that there's a lack of energy, that something's being repressed. I mean, general conference is like the symbol of submission, conformity. It's symbolic of this false choice. It's gotten to the point where if you don't parrot other general authorities, if you don't mimic them in style and substance and syntax and delivery, you're seen as unconventional, foreign. You're seen as a, as a rebel culturally inside our community, not just by other general authorities, by the way, but by people watching, by everything. We've gone crazy with this idea of submission, conformity, viewing conflict, tension, disagreement as fundamental evils. But anyone who really believes this way has not read the New Testament, even though the verse on conflict is of the devil is in the New Testament. Because the broader story of the New Testament, at least of the Gospels, is of Jesus saying, hey, old hierarchy, who I don't agree with, you're dumb, I'm going to do what I want to do. I think your traditions are dumb. I think your practices of stoning people who are guilty of adultery has gone a little too far. Your Sabbath day practices are a little hypocritical. I'm sick of seeing people sell merchandise out in front of the temple. I'm going to turn over those tables. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to use the fuel of the tension between my view and your view. I'm going to use that fuel to push forward to a higher level. And the result was a religious movement that's lasted for 2,000 years. That is not the picture of Jesus that we paint inside our community. We paint a submissive, loving, soft-spoken, non-confrontational, placid Jesus. Someone who just looked up to the being above him in the hierarchy and did what he was commanded to do. And we extrapolate illogically from that and feel like our role in life is to look up to the person above us in the hierarchy, be it the bishop, release society president, stake president, 70, whomever, and do what they're telling us to do, whether we agree with it or not. And then we feel badly when our skills of submission are inadequate. And all we do is feel this tension. Or we repress it further and then we feel anger. Now, I want to be clear. I think submission, I think the ability to let go, to accept things as they are, certainly things that are beyond your control is a good skill, probably even a prerequisite to higher spirituality. But the idea that you submit no matter what, or you're of the devil because you feel conflict and tension, that's a false choice. That's not the choice in life. The more common choice that we face is when you feel conflict, when you feel tension, how will you apply this energy? Will you use it to make Molotov cocktails, nuclear bombs, or will you use it to power the automobile, power the nuclear reactor for electricity? And here's a little insider's tip. 
the people you're in conflict with, the people you feel tension with, they are never going to say to you that you have this choice. Not because they're necessarily evil or they want to lie to you or they're trying to manipulate you, but they're just hung up on their own point of view and they're trying to win for their side. So the people you feel tension with are never going to give you this deep metaphysical tutorial about tension and conflict in general. Because if they're enlightened enough to give you said tutorial, you would not be in conflict with them. They'd be so elevated and so at peace and so zen-like, so aware, that you would never have conflict with them. They would acknowledge your point of view and you'd acknowledge theirs and everybody would be acknowledging each other and you know it would, it would work its way out. There would be no tension. So don't expect that sort of forbearance from people you're having conflict with, even if it's people inside the church. Instead, and until people get to that state of mind, try to use the conflict and the tension as a form of fuel to do good things and apply it in a positive way. Use the energy to study more, to become more introspective. Use the energy to think more, to talk to more people. Use the energy to be kind, to become more enlightened. And keep the fuel for yourself. Don't add more fuel for the other side. Said another way, the people who love Bitcoin, the people who want a decentralized world, are never going to get a little lesson from the legacy incumbents about how to use their opposition as fuel energy moving forward. That's something that the people who love Bitcoin, for example, have to figure out for themselves. Likewise, this lesson about life is not in the manual. It's one of those things you figure out by being here, by being on the planet. No one's going to tell it to you during your next Temple Recommend interview. No one's going to tell it to you during the next tithing settlement. You're probably not going to hear it from the pulpit at General Conference. It's like a lot of things in life. You figure it out as you're trying to adhere or comply or do something else that you think is the real goal. But really, it's these lessons that you're learning on your own. We make reference to these type of lessons in our own scriptures, but not explicitly so. We talk about light. We talk about further light and knowledge. We talk about endless progress. We talk about wisdom. We never really explain what those things are. Because frankly, there's a lot of people who just don't know what they are. And my experience has been the people who do know what light and wisdom and continued progress are usually aren't running things. They're the quiet ones in the back smiling, using the energy that comes from all the conflict they see around them, storing it. They're not making bombs out of it. They're certainly not amping up the volume to give the opposition fuel. This deeper wisdom, this brighter light. These are the universal ends, the ultimate destination of all good people living religious belief, regardless of the beliefs. At the end of our paths, most religions take us to this same universal place. And it's this end place, this ultimate wisdom that really matters. And so while the egoic mind, the human mind, is scrupulously living the tenets of some religion, the deeper mind... The spiritual being inside us is organically growing into something that is bigger, greater, deeper, more profound than what we are today. And we're all going to get there, even the bomb throwers eventually, even those who think the task in life is to submit exclusively. Because experience teaches us that we need to find a better way. We get tired of being angry or repressed or denied 
or merely submissive, and we learned, eventually, to harvest all the energy that's around us and to convert it into something that's constructive. It's like alchemy or magic or the power of God. This is the religion I think Joseph Smith was interested in. His weaknesses and sins aside, I think he was trying to free us to submit when we need to, harvest the energy from conflict when we can, push for it when we need to, but ultimately to act for ourselves. Because only by acting for yourself can you gain experience. And only through experience do you really know something. Which leads me to my final point. Tierra, who wrote the message to me on Facebook, said at the very end, how do we avoid self-deception in all of this? As we're exercising our own authority to act, how can we be sure we're not deceiving ourselves? And I think what she means is, how can we be sure that we're not just indulging our lusts or being unnecessarily prideful and therefore making mistakes? And of course, we don't know. Not at the beginning. We're just playing the probabilities. We're doing what we think is right. We're doing what we think is productive. We're doing what we think is constructive, but we don't really know, which is why we're here to learn what works and what doesn't through our own experience. That prospect can terrorize us, though, of course. We live in fear that we're not going to check all the boxes. We're going to get up to heaven, realize we weren't valiant, God doesn't love us anymore, and we're banished forever. If we just submitted a little more, just stop relying on our own moral authority and just got in line, clung to the rod, whatever that means, and defied by exactly whom, well, no one really knows. Nonetheless, if we had only done that, well, then God would still love us and we'd be with him in heaven, with our families. Oh, man. Failed the test, blew the probation. Oh. Hopefully, though, God is not as shallow as that. Hopefully, God gave us our agency so that we'd use it put us in this sandbox called the earth so that we'd play a little bit in it, left us here long enough so that we acquired some real experience and through it some judgment about what's good, bad, right, wrong, what makes us happy, how to use the energy bubbling around in this world. At the end of the day, someone who would do all of that for us, I think, is someone who loves us, not someone who wants us to merely fear him. Well, I've gone on far too long. Sorry about that. Hope you found something interesting here today. And by the way, do you like my new bumper music? If not, I'm going to turn that tension, that conflict I feel from you, I'm going to convert it into something worthwhile. Until next time.